This is Nerd Podcast Radio, brought to you by our patrons at patreon.com slash nerdpodcastradio. Check out and support us on Patreon for tons of content, including a bonus episode for each episode. If you'd like to reach out to us, the best way to do that is our Nerd Podcast Radio Facebook page, where we share all sorts of nerdy stuff. You can also find us on Instagram, at Nerd Podcast Radio, and on Twitter, at Nerdcast Radio. Don't forget to review us on iTunes or whatever podcast provider you use. Reviews are important as they help our podcast grow. Thanks for listening, everyone. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Nerd Podcast Radio, your nerd home away from home. Welcome to Nerd Podcast Radio. I'm your host, Super Vegan Brian, and I am joined by Hindu Anthony. What's up, Buttercup? And that's it for co-hosts this morning. Yeah, yeah, Um, it's just us. Anthony plumbed the depths of the internet and found a... (laughs) Much more distinguished guests than we're used to. Um, uh, I would like to welcome um, a PhD researcher of conspiracy theories, or PhD student researcher of conspiracy theories, Logan Spence. Hello, it's good to be here. Um, please introduce yourself to listeners. Tell us a little about yourself. Uh, yeah, so I am, my name is Logan Spence. I am a PhD as of a week ago, now a PhD candidate. Um, oh, congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and I uh, study conspiracy theories, but specifically, um, I study the rhetoric conspiracy theories. So my PhD background is in communication studies. And uh, in communication studies, we have a bunch of different camps, for lack of a better term. You have your quantitative people, people who do stats, qualitative people, people who do ethnographies and interviews. And you have people like me who do like rhetoric and philosophy and all that. Right. And so what I do is I study rhetoric and persuasive messaging within conspiracy theories now now listeners when we actually get into a topic we're going to do a little bit of a glossary and names thing at the beginning because i had a talk with logan um we spoke for a little over an hour and talked about conspiracy theories and i had to stop him many times and go what's that what's that huh (laughs) what what Lay, lay terms what so we we will definitely do that and this um and um the topic oh anthony is going to be on the spot the topic is going to be conspiracy theories but first it's time for everybody's favorite game what's nerdy with you where we all talk about what's the nerdiest thing we did last week and using matt myler's pattern widget system you get to vote for who you thought had the nerdiest thing Oh, that's fantastic. Other than it's Mike Myler, not Matt Myler. <laughs> nope, it's now Matt Myler. <laughs> it's so now Matt Mike Myler is dead. <laughs> oh, don't joke. He lives in Pennsylvania. <laughs> He's still alive. I just changed his name. Oh, okay. Um, I um, um, So the way this game works is we share the nerdiest thing we've done last few weeks. And as our guest, you are totally on the spot, Logan, and you get to go first. All right. So the nerdiest thing I've done, uh, not necessarily this week, but a week ago, is I defended my dissertation proposal that made me a doctoral candidate. Um, 
uh, as of for the past like week or, or so. So now I can start applying for jobs as a professor. And I guess I'm currently uh, reading a bunch of philosophy books, particularly Slavov Zizek's The Plague of Fantasies. I have, you know, we talked about philosophy for a bit, and you throw, you know, like I told you about this when we talked before the show, was my knowledge of philosophy is what I heard on The Good Place. <laughs> so, um, tell us a little about Flavo Zizek. Uh, well, so Slavo Zizek is arguably the most popular um, uh, philosopher right now. Um, and he is a Slovenian philosopher, particularly he, he would, like, if you were to ask him, like, what type of philosopher would you consider yourself? He would, he would outright say, I'm a Hegelian, I'm a Hegelian. And there is truth to that. Yeah, he is definitely a Hegelian philosopher, but he's also a Lacanian psychoanalyst. He does a lot of, uh, Lacan, Freud, um, and largely what he does is, in the what he's most known for is his book back in the 80s called The Sublime Object of Ideology, where he basically tries to, in his kind of words, kind of save Hegel. You got, now, for those who might be philosophers, might be wondering why that, like, what, why would he be saving Hegel? Because that during the time when he was writing this book back in the 1980s, uh, Hegel's dialectics was considered either boring, and some philosophers in the Marxist tradition were not we're starting to find less use in Hegel. So Zizek was basically arguing that a lot of Marxist philosophers were misreading Hegel and were um and he basically argued that through Lacan. So that's basically what he does. He basically uses Lacan and Hegel to better understand Marxist philosophy better. Well, the fact that I picked up I thought legalian probably means legalism, right? L Lacan. Uh, you, you oh, oh, yo, he oh, Hegelian, Hegelian, yeah, yeah. Oh, Hegelian. Hegelian, yeah, Hegel, yeah. Oh, my God. No, this you're good, you're good. So much fun. Um, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I know what Marxism is. <laughs> Yay, you got I, the big one. You know, I never took philosophy. Um, that's going to be really, really evident in this podcast is oh, I no, never took no, philosophy. No. But um, that can wait until topic. Anthony... What was nerdy with you? Oh, I gotta follow this act up. Jesus Christ. Um, so as uh listeners may know, I came out a while back as like a non-binary trans person, and I was looking at getting if you hear screaming, that's my kid. I was looking at getting HRT, and that meant needing to go get my base hormone levels checked. So I went to go get those checked. Turns out my estrogen levels are very high, like very, very high. Um uh, uh, we're talking like I have like um I have like female levels of estrogen <laughs> that high. Um, and then I got my, and then I got my testosterone levels back yesterday and they are low. They're not outside of normal range, but they are pretty close. It's, it's right there at that line. Uh, actually, both of my hormone levels are very much the same. They're about the same number actually, which is uh, not healthy. I actually need to fix that. <laughs> um, so I have, uh, with this, with this new knowledge, I have been actually doing research and looking up different, um, intersex conditions. Cause I'm like, maybe this is an intersex thing. Um, and I was doing some research. And I'm like, nah, that one doesn't really fit. I don't think really that one fits. I don't, I'm not, I don't think that one works. And then I got to like Kleinfelter syndrome. I'm like, oh, this seems like it might be a fit actually. So I've been like researching like different intersex conditions, specifically mostly Kleinfelter syndrome. That's what I did this week. <laughs> oh, I, well, I'm going to lose. <laughs> so Brian, what did you do? Oh, I was waiting for follow-up questions, but I'll just go with Brian. What did you do? I, this week? I don't know. I, you know, honestly, Anthony, let's, let's do that. Um, 
I I don't know what an intersex condition is. So, and honestly, while you're going through this, I don't know what you want to talk about <laughs> in public on the podcast. So it's hard for me to ask questions because I'm it's you know, when we're in private, I'll be I'll I'll ask you the most embarrassing inappropriate questions ever. But on the podcast, guys, guys, I'm like guys, guys. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna assume yeah. for sexual harassment one day. <laughs> <laughs> so if if you would like to elaborate I, I will ask that way. If you would like to elaborate, I would be very interested in what an intersex condition is and what okay. you found in your research. So an intersex condition is, um, so a lot of people, um, especially um, unintelligent conservatives, um, like to think that uh, sex is a one or two thing. You're either boy or you're either girl. Um, but that's not true. Uh, biological sex is actually a spectrum. And um, on... The correct term would be biological sex is a um, bimodal spectrum, as in there are two um, modes at each end of the spectrum um, where 90% of all people let rest within these two nodes. And in between is like kind of a valley of differences. And that's where like the other like that's where like 2% of the population rests. in, And this is where the intersex comes in. It's where you have conditions where you don't fall entirely in either one of these nodes um and the fit and the the um the spectrum can be um hormonal and it can be actual physical attributes as well yeah it can be hormones chromosomes um physical attributes um in, there could even be even um even like um mistake like um surgery accidents during birth could lead to these so like example there have been examples of uh, boys who got circumcised like getting their penis chopped off um which then means that they're losing like their sex organs which could lead to like obviously like potential future problems like there have been kid boys who got like their penis chopped off and then the parents decided to just remove everything which means they got like their testicles removed and then they're like yeah just give them a vagina and we'll just treat them like a little girl and um this this and then they would give them hormone therapy but this could be considered a type of intersex condition an accidental one but it could still be considered one i can't think of a humorous pun because nope. the idea i i'm trying really hard and trust me one will pop into my head sometime during the podcast it's like the green m, &M. Uh, oh, oh no 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 i i got it it sounds like they would be boned <laughs> there there there's my nice i love it there's my um, there's my there joke. So the specific one that I was looking into, Klinefelter syndrome, is one in which, um, so normally you're supposed, if you're a male, you're supposed to have an X and a Y chromosome. But some people, people with Klinefelter syndrome, have two X and a Y. Um, two X is the is the, the female karyotype. So if you are XXY, you have both female and male chromosome um, karyotyping. So, oh, okay. So you have, you have both the X, okay. Yeah, you'd have the double X like a female and you'd have the XY like a male. You'd, you'd be like XXY. So you have like something that's kind of like an in-between like male-female karyotype. And a lot of times they'll know that at birth. That doesn't change though, does it? I mean, naturally? No, okay. I wouldn't think it would change. Yeah. Well, and, and that's the thing is I asked my mom a bunch of questions. I was like, was there anything odd about my birth? And she was like, I don't remember. And I was like, really, mom? She's like, no, I don't remember. And she's like, you were premature. And that's that's all she remembers. I'm like, okay, that's very helpful, mom. Yeah, I I guess once you're healthy, it's like you don't really think about anything else. Yeah, they um 
they they suspect so the, the numbers i think it's one in 600 boys will have Kleinfelter, and they suspect that there's a lot more but because the symptoms can be so mild that a lot of men will go their entire lives and not even notice it uh, most of the time it's diagnosed when um a man is trying to have a kid and then he finds out he's in infertile that's the most common way it's found out okay but what did you do brian what was what was your week like um I have been doing a little project and um, I've been in the Pathfinder role-playing game. I've been making a character of every single class in every single variety and every single ancestry. That's so cool, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I, But I love how it's like academic research, research into your own biology, and then role-playing game. <laughs> <laughs> but that's so nerdy. Um, yeah, I mean... In my personal life, we've been doing a lot of research about fish because we um, we lost a fish. We lost one of our panda corridoris, and now we're um, trying to figure out why they didn't thrive and how to make sure the rest of the school thrives or if we're going to get more fish or like what was lacking in the tank. We're thinking it was just a weak fish who didn't deal well with the water changes. But I mean, um, one of the things about this game, this What's Dirty With You is as a host of a nerd podcast, and this is probably true about Anthony or David or Eric or anybody else who's a host on this show is we have very nerdy lives. So a lot of the stuff we do feels very normal. So when it comes time to share what's the nerdiest thing we did, we probably leave a lot off the table. Would you see that's true, Anthony? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that there are points where it's like, Oh, I could have talked about this. I could have talked about that. I could have talked about this. And then it's like, but I have to narrow it down to like the one thing. I had a brainstorming session with my IT manager about um, multi-factor authentication involving VPN. And I think that was a very nerdy conversation. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was doing um, I was doing research on different um, BDSM community stuff also. So like that was another research thing. Local communities or um, uh, like specific I, I categories of communities? I have partners that are into BDSM and they have particular kinks. And so I was doing research into these, oh, okay. these different things. Yeah, they're, they're, you know, it's like when you say communities, it's like, are you looking for like a specific group that's local? Or are you looking for an online discussion group? Or are you looking just like a description of what the different communities are? Oh, no, I legit had a conversation with a local BDSM like community member of like a near of like a place near me to be like, hey, I have questions about this particular thing. Well, that would be time for voting now. <laughs> <laughs> what a way to end that. <laughs> Anthony uh, oversharing is their uh, their uh, sexual uh, life. Um. We have um, four widgets each, and the way this works is we'll go around the table and um, give widgets to the different members of the conversation for what the nerdiest thing was. So, um, Logan, you get to go first. You have four widgets. Who would you like to give them to? You can give them to yourself, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, oh so we're voting. Oh, okay, so we're voting. Yeah. Um, I have four widgets. Um, I don't know. Uh, I guess I'd give... Uh, Two to myself and two to Anthony. All right. Thanks. And uh, Anthony, what about you? Um, I'll also give two to Logan because super nerdy. And then I'll give one to Brian. Yeah, Brian, because I, I liked what you did. It's pretty nerdy. It's pretty good. And I guess I'll give one to myself because I think I was also nerdy. 
Well, I'm going to give all four of mine to Logan, so Logan uh, wins. Fair, fair. Respect. I respect. I have I have relatives that have gone through the same thing. We we have a family of doctors, of like medical doctors, and uh, I have yeah, I have relatives that have gone through very similar academic and, and I I know how grueling and how intense it is and yeah. Um so I respect. Yeah, Logan, man. Good luck. That Thank that you. sounds like a lot, but you know, I know you could do it. I've heard, I heard, I've heard your conversations and read your article. You you can do it. You're a smart guy. Thank you. I appreciate. Um, so we are on to topic, and we're talking about conspiracy theories. So, um, do the X Files. Yeah. Well, but let's not actually do that because of copyright. Copyright. Yeah. Yeah. What what would be generic X Files music would be da da ba. No, I can't do it. I no, can't. Wait, you're, you're doing it too good. You get a copyright from your yeah. from your voice alone. <laughs> what if yeah. we did the the Doctor Who sound? Isn't that like in the like the common domain now? Very much not because it's English and it's a whole uh... different thing. Um, no, no, very much not. The BBC protects their copyrights very strongly. Um, good to know. <laughs> I think you can go. You can go. Do we you and not be. Because it's just one little sound bite. Um, but anything beyond it, they're like, mm-mm. All right. So in basic lay terms, I'm going to ask the first question. The way we do this is we go around the table asking questions to each other. Got this it. would be really easy. I'll ask Logan a question. He'll ask Anthony a question. Anthony asks me a question. And we'll go back around, and then eventually we'll just start asking, you know, creating conversations. But my first question is, in basic lay terms, Logan, what is a conspiracy theory? So, um, in order to understand what a conspiracy theory is, we have to first understand what is a conspiracy, because that word kind of gets implied into the definition. So, a conspiracy is, is really simple. It's just a group of people agreeing to secretly engage in some type of, you know, plan or plot, whatever you might want to call it to achieve some type of goal. So there are three conditions for a conspiracy, right? You have the conspirators condition, you have which are basically the cons- like the people who agree to do the conspiracy and who try and it- or attempt emphasis on that word attempt to work in secret to achieve some type of goal. Now some of the audience might be wondering, "Wait, that's pretty broad. Would that include like surprise birthday parties?" And you're correct. It would include surprise birthday parties. So that is a, what a conspiracy is. So now what is a conspiracy theory? Simple. It is simply a social theory that impl- that asserts or theorizes about the possibility of a conspiracy behind um, uh, some type of social or political event. Sometimes not even like political. It can just be what's, what's a social theory? So like when I say social theory, because I, I try to se- separate like theory in the colloquial sense and theory oh, okay. in the academic sense, right? So like imagine if it's like your birthday and no, and like you're getting like the vibe that your friends are throwing you like a, birth- a surprise birthday party. And you're like, oh, George hasn't like said happy birthday to me like all day. No one, no one's wish, wished me happy birthday. Everyone's asked me these very specific questions. I wonder if they're going to throw me a birthday. Like that's, that's what I mean by theorizing, right? Like it's in, in the colloquial sense. I can imagine that there can be with a conspiracy theory, it sort of gets to be a snake eating its own tail where there could be conspiracy theories about where conspiracy theories came from. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like they go, well, I bet this particular theory was planted by the Russians and that this theory was planted. So it was created for this reason. And that creates an entirely new conspiracy Um, theory. 
So on yeah, that, on that, on that exact topic, a very funny thing, um, I'm sure Logan knows about this, but a very common talking point you hear amongst conspiracy theorists, because I have like some like kind of wacky conspiracy theorist friends, and a very common talking point you hear from them is they'll say, um, you calling me a conspiracy theorist is is a thing created by the government. So like they believe like the idea and the and the um the the idea of turning conspiracy theorists into an insulting term is itself a conspiracy theory by the government to discredit them. Yeah, it, it, it's like um it, it, if you look in like for instance like QAnon spaces, the if, if we all remember like back in I forgot when it was last year in Dallas when there was those those QAnon people who went to Dallas just because they thought that JFK Jr. was actually secretly right, alive, yeah, right. And so that is actually a very particular sect within QAnon called the Negative 45 Cult. That is their name. I, that they call themselves the Negative... Oh, wait, not 40... No, second, Negative 48. I'm sorry, Negative 48 Cult. Um, and um, they they are the ones that push that the JFK Jr. or JFK is still alive um, uh, conspiracy theories. But the thing is, is that not only has Q never said in a drop that JFK Jr. is alive, he has specifically said that JFK Jr. is dead, and anyone who claims to like align with like align with that conspiracy theory theory under the QAnon name is just a grifter. And so, like, so even Q has said like anyone who claims to be a QAnon follower but thinks that JFK Jr. is alive is is a fed. They're a fed. They're 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 implanting BS bullshit conspiracy theories to basically discredit us. It can get really crazy, huh? Yeah, it's yeah. like it's it's like one of those things where um because. Uh, and this is like kind of like the philosophical debate about like the validity of conspiracy theories because it's very easy to just dismiss them and and that's not to say that you can't dismiss certain ones you absolutely can right so like if you got like you know the the Jewish question or whatever like obviously you can dismiss those because like there are so many ways that you could just disprove that conspiracy theory right but there are some that are that are a lot more valid compared to others right and so the um, it gets crazy because like you know. In philosophy, not just in philosophy, like all act, all like the so, um, social sciences, humanities deal with some extent to epistemology. Which, for those who don't know, epistemology is basically the theory of knowledge. How do we know what we know, right? And so the thing with epistemology is that like no one knows everything. Like no one has some type of you know you know omnip omnip omnipotent like um, you know reference to all knowledge, right? So you can never truly know. Like, what if there was more going on in Watergate than we were led on to be? We have no idea, right? That, like, there's there's, there's no way you can, it's because you can't disprove, you know, you know, a negative, right? So it's it gets really hard to, like, parse through what you know and what you don't know. So it can become like a snake eating its own tail because, you know, how do you know which conspiracies are valid, which ones aren't? And which ones are like in competition with one another? It's it gets wild. Well, especially when you get into ones like flat Earth, like like yeah. you had said, ones that can easily be proven wrong, and it's like, but they still have great followings. Yeah, and, and now the yeah with like, and there are some conspiracy theories where um, and it, it depends on like how you want to approach it, right? From like a, an academic perspective. Now I'm I say philosophy, right? Like. I do rhetoric, which is a very, very, very particular type of philosophy that's not even really practiced in most philo philosophical like departments. Most people who do rhetoric are typically in English departments or in communication studies departments, right? But like when people look at like philosophy, right, um, of like conspiracy theories, it, you can go about this in different ways. So, for instance, Jenny Rice in her book um, Awful Archives, she uses um, conspiracy theories or paranoid conspiracy theories, and we can get into that in a minute if you want to know what paranoid conspiracy is. Um, 
the she goes into how like paranoid conspiracy theories become a really useful way for understanding how we engage and use archives and or and also not how not just how we use archives but also how we use evidence because basically what she argues is that conspiracy theory theorists demonstrate how we how evidence isn't um because evidence we often describe evidence as being um weighted we often describe uh good evidence as weighing a lot there's a lot of weight behind this evidence that's how we often that's the language we often talking about evidence is like it's very weighty it has a lot uh, a lot of um, mass to it or, or whatnot and what she argues is that like what conspiracy theorists do is they demonstrate that they're not it's not weight that evidence is being used even though it's the language we say um the what thing about with evidence is that evidence is more of a verb it's a doing we do evidence we we evidence is an action that we do that we use to understand the social world so like so there are different ways you can like go out analyzing conspiracy theories um if you look at say um uh, uh folding ideas video on flat earth he has a really good analysis on the flat earth theory and basically it's like for him for flat earthers the actual shape of the earth is actually the least important thing to most flat earthers. It's the conspiracy behind flat earth that's more important to them. So there are other ways that you can kind of approach conspiracy theories depending on like what framework you're coming at this. You don't necessarily have to go into is this valid or not. You can examine it from other from other lenses. Right. It's not it's not a matter of doesn't matter if the earth is flat or round. It's a matter of the idea that there is a global conglomerate of quote unquote as they would say scientists. Yeah. They're trying to convince everyone the world is round. So they're like, they don't care about the flat or round thing. They care about the fact that there's this nebulous group of people that want to trick everyone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, yeah, there are multiple different ways that you can kind of go about that, right? And so, and if, if you read my article, right, like I, I examine the rhetoric of denialism. So like Holocaust denialism or COVID denialism. Um, and other forms of denialism, and basically illustrate how they kind of work discursively. Now, can you break down what rhetoric means? Because I, I, I have a lot of trouble with that word in this context. Yeah, 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 sure. So rhetoric, so funny enough, asking me what, like, what is rhetoric is actually more of a loaded question than you realize, because rhetoricians still debate to this day what rhetoric even fucking means. Um, uh, all right, how, how would you break it down in context as to what you're talking about without getting too deep? Like, so if we like, if we focus more on like what Aristotle talked about, so for Aristotle, rhetoric was simply just was more of a, it was more of a practical, right? Rhetoric was more of like a, a tool of persuasion and an understanding of persuasion. How do you persuade your audience, right? And there are debates within academic rhetoric about whether or not rhetoric should even get into the business of theory, because that's been kind of big in my field for a little while, is trying to theorize about rhetoric. And there have been debates about whether or not that's even, like, useful. Because if you look at the original rhetorical scholars like Isocrates and Aristotle, they specifically say that theory and anything beyond the practicality of rhetoric destroys the very notion of rhetoric, because to them, rhetoric is just trying to persuade people and if you read aristotle's rhetoric he just shows you like it's basically like a manual guide like how do you persuade an audience right you know um if you're you know if an audience is prone to being anger you know exploit their anger if they're prone to being envious exploit their envy blah 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 right it's basically a manual guide right and he, for him if you try to explain it through a theoretical lens it stops being rhetoric and so for me i understand that to an extent so for me rhetoric in this context is both like a practical tool 
but I do think there needs to be some philosophizing behind it to understand where the rhetoric comes from. So like, I guess I can give like an example. So my dissertation, I am examining the rhetorical foundations of January 6th. Particularly, I'm examining the MAGA um, campaign and, and QAnon and how they kind of synthesized together as a one grand conspiracy theory that laid the foundation to justify January 6th, right? And what I'm using is I'm using Slavoj Žižek, and I'm also using Lacanian psychoanalysis. Because Lacan, in a, from a psychoanalytic perspective, um, ideology is very different from how Marx defined ideology. So Marx defined ideology as, um, as like almost like this quasi-religious consciousness thing where it's almost like a blanket that keeps you from seeing reality the way that it truly is. That, to him, is what's false conscious. The working class hasn't seen the exploitation. And that was basically, to put it in layman's terms, his coping, his copium. He was, co he was coping why there hasn't been a socialist revolution. But what Zizek and Lacan would argue is that it's actually the other way around. Ideology isn't some blanket that like covers your ability to see reality the way it is. There is no illusion in ideology. What ideology does is that it keeps you from seeing how the so like from seeing the social forces that construct reality. So what it does is like there are there are tons of contradictions within our social reality. But what ideology does is it's you from noticing the contradictions. You notice the exploitation. You know what the, the class hierarchy that happens within the symbolic order, but you don't see the contradictions because they're either repressed into the unconscious or you find ways to justify them, right? And and so what I do is I use that psychoanalytic framework to understand rhetoric, right? So for me, I'm not interested in understanding like what, like what particular rhetorical tactics do paranoid conspiracy theorists use. Richard Hofstadter, which again, we can get into that in a minute. Um, Richard Hofstadter already laid the groundwork for that long time ago, and other rhetorical scholars have done the same. I'm interested in understanding why do they do this, right? Psychoanalytic theory explains the why. Why do they use these particular rhetorical styles? And I think like psychoanalytic theory can be useful for understanding the practical language in which people conspiracies use. When you get into the idea that they don't see, you, you would say that ideology is the reason why they don't see the con contradictions? Yeah. When you get into that, my is that when you start talking about things like the Dunder-Kruger effect, about how people who are more ignorant about a subject seem to be more confident about the subject now i'm not as familiar with the dunning kruger effect but what i can say is think of it this way so zizek has a really good example so um so there's in the lacani what i call the triad i don't know if that's actually what it's called i just call it the triad because it's the it's the symbolic the imaginary and the real that's why i call it the triad but i don't, I don't know if that's what it's actually literally called so but, uh, the Oh, sorry. Oh, I was ahead, just coming about the Dunning-Kruger effect. So the way the Dunning-Kruger effect is, um, it's basically, it's kind of an XY axis that um, kind of starting at the very base. So like the X axis would be how much uh, research and knowledge you have on a topic. And the Y axis would be how um, confident you feel that you know a lot about it. And so as the X goes to the right, it kind of does like a like an uphill and then a slope down. So as you do more research when you get to a certain point where where like you've done very little research but at the x-axis but at the y-axis you're at the very tip so it's oh, the idea okay. that like that like that like people uh, a lot of times people um who have this problem they'll do very little research and they'll think they know a fuck ton and then as they do more research they start to realize like oh shit no 
I don't know shit. And then it starts to slope down. You probably are experiencing this right now. You've been doing a lot of research on all this stuff. And so you're probably at a point where like your y-axis is all the way to the far right, but your x-axis is probably very low. You're probably like, I don't know anything about any of this stuff. Yeah. So, so I, I think, um, let me, uh, yeah, yeah. So there, there, I guess there is like a, like a, um, some reference here because like what, what Lacan, so the, so think of, so in the imaginary, there's a thing called the fantasy, the ideological fantasy. These are more of like narratives that we often work within that help us me- mediate our symbolic identification with the, so think of the real as, um, like it, it, it so I'm going to use the, I'm going to use the Lacanian definition. That's, that's the, that's the place where, um, the crew of the um, Nebuchadnezzar is hi- hiding from robots, and uh, Morpheus is helping Neo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the real, yeah, the meat space. Yeah, the real, yeah, yeah. But like, the, welcome like, to the yeah. to the wasteland of the to real. The waste. Well, I guess to a certain, yeah, because because it is often joked about how the real is kind of a wasteland because the the um because like the real is it, it's two contradictory things at once. It is simultaneously a pre-symbolic thing and it is also an empty thing so think of it this way so like you know we have a tree right do you think a tree even knows that it's called a tree no it's it has no idea do you think it even cares that it has that's called a tree no like it not only does it not care it doesn't even have the faculties to care right it's just a thing that exists in the world prior to our language like it, it it's going to be exist whether or not you call it a tree it doesn't matter that and so like that is like what what Lacanian psychoanalysis mean when they say that the real is like this pre symbolic thing but what eventually happens is is that the real eventually gets drained as we start constructing language about it right so the moment we start t- so like describing that thing through language the thing gets drained and it becomes an empty husk of what it originally was but that drainage leads to a type of excess which is called enjoyment or in lacanian sense the joissance it's that it's that excess it, it's a once there's a, there's like a type of castration that happens and there's that excess that exists beyond language itself so like if you ever gone to like you know done something that like you know elicited some type of emotional response like maybe you've gone to disney world before right and you and someone you were asked like why is you know, why do you love Disney so much? Most people will say like, oh, well, it's the happiest place on earth or something like that, right? Like they can't, they can't describe it beyond like really empty language because it's, it's an excess. It, that, that enjoyment is meant to escape language, right? And what the fantasy does is it, is it kind of like, it keeps you from noticing the real, right? So like it keeps you from noticing the contradictions within your own subjectivity and the symbolic order. So, um, so like think of, for instance, um, what was it? Oh, so uh, Lacan made the famous uh, thesis that there are no sexual relationships. Basically, what Lacan was arguing is that um, that there are no, there, there is no sexual relationship. Instead, what we do is we come up with with fantasies in our head to cope with the fact that nothing exists. Because that's the general thesis of Lacanian psychoanalysis: that nothing exists, that we live in a void, and language is basically a coping mechanism. It's well, always that's interesting. That makes me think yeah. of Buddhism. Yeah, it, yeah. In fact, Zizek actually argues that Buddhism will be the next religion that dominates some um, capitalism. Not it won't oh. be really Buddhism. And so. Um, so yeah, so it's like we, nothing actually exists. Language is a coping mechanism. And so there is no sexual relationship. The idea of like, 
loving your partner is like this like narrative that we come up with on the spot to like cope with the fact that we're just coming up with a fantastical narrative to justify procreation or non-procreation, right? Uh, and there's other aspects too, like the death drive and like, you know, holding back our, our pleasures and blah, 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 blah. Now, Logan, you, you inspired me to take this into a nerdier place. I, yeah, I yeah. have a question. I have a question for you. you. You made me think about this. All right. So there's this, I, the, there's this whole idea about um, we might possibly live in a simulation. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Is the idea that we live in simulation a thought experiment or a conspiracy theory? So Zizek actually does talk about this. He actually uses um, the, 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 the rise of VR sex as kind of like an example. So, and that's where it goes back to the, the whole thesis that there is no sexual relationship. Because what he, so he goes, what, what VR and virtual sex illustrates is... It, it, it indicates, it, it proves the fantasy, right? It proves that we rely on a fantasy to, to cope with the, non, with the non-existence existence of our sexual relationships. And so what the, what the virtual world does is that it kind of placates to that fantasy, right? So the fan, and, and keep in mind, the fantasy isn't just, oh, I want to have sex with this girl, but I can't. That's not what fantasy is from a Lacanian perspective. It's why do I want to have sex with this person? Why do I want to have this cake? Like, it, it's, it's asking the why. That's what Lacanian psychoanalysts are interested in. And so when people go to, like, so say, like, simulated sex or whatever, that is, like, where the fantasy, it's, like, it's almost, like, directly illustrating the fantasy, right? So, like, that's why, um, the, that's what, that kind of, like, illustrates that Lacanian thesis, that nothing exists. Language is just a coping mechanism. And we use fantasies that, and oftentimes fantasies don't even have coherent narrative structures. They're often, like, presumptions that we work with that we that are often um unutterable like that like they're 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 because the whole point of the fantasy is that it's supposed to be distant you're supposed there's supposed to be an um a deliberate distance between what you want and the fantasy because that because the moment the fantasy is like made more explicit that's where anxiety comes in so the fantasy is supposed to is supposed to be distant while also while also structuring your desires. I want to ground this topic. How how does this relate specifically to conspiracy theories? So like so okay so goes back to that Zizek example. So the Zizek, so Zizek has an example uh, relies on anti-Semitism. So as I re remember before, right? Marx Marx thought that ideology was like something that like cloaked your eyes that prevented you from seeing reality the way that it actually is. And what Zizek argues is that. That's not how ideology works because the moment you feel like you've taken, because uh, Zizek's like, if there's anything you learn from Zizek, this is probably the most important. The moment you feel as if you've left ideology, that's when ideology is at strongest. Because the moment you feel like you've taken the mask off, what you end up doing is you end up justifying the exact same thing, but with extra steps. Because ideology or the thing that structures your social reality is repressed into the unconscious. So anti-Semitism is a great example of this. So um, if, for instance, you know, let's say, you know, you run into a crazy anti-Semite, right? And they're frothing at the mouth like the Jews control the banks and blah, 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 right? And then um, some well-intentioned person comes in, like, thinking that they've taken the anti-Semitism mask off and that they've seen past the veil of the, of the, of the, of the illusion. Here's what they'll likely say, not realizing what they're doing. Oh, hold on, anti-Semite. You're, you're, you know, I think you're judging the Jews 
too quickly. You're, you know, you're making all these accusations against them without any evidence. So here's what we'll do. Let's look at the evidence to see if what you're saying about the Jews is, is true. And basically what Zizek is arguing is that you're justifying anti-Semitism, but with extra steps. Because what if you do show that Jews have small disproportionate um, representation in the bank, right? Because then what you'll do is you'll only, you'll only make the Nazi feel more vindicated than before, right? So even though you feel like you've taken the mask off, you're still justifying anti-Semitism because anti-Semitism is repressed into the unconscious. You discover it in the unconscious, even if you feel like you've taken the mask off. So that, so for me, conspiracy theories is where the fantasy at is, is at because the fantasy is, is like this implicit thing where you try to explain the chaotic nature of the world and that always leads down to some type of conspiracy theory. So the idea is, so the idea isn't a literal belief that nothing exists. It's analyzing these kind of ideas from the idea that reality isn't real and it's all mental. It's it's like it's, so the from a Lacani perspective, they always begin with the notion that we our identity, our lives, our world is structured around a void. It everything begins from nothing, right? And what we do is we create a language to kind of cope with that nothingness. And so, and what they do is they kind of, it, Lacan like kind of structures out how people like become almost neurotic in their, in their, in, in their intro, introduction into the society. So there's like the hysteric and there's the, um, um, the obsessional neurotic. So, and they have their own different ways of kind of, in, uh, of becoming more, they're like the hysteric, for instance, will often reject um, or question their own subjectivity, whereas the obsessional becomes like is is willing to is becomes obsessed with like maintaining things the way they are, and they're even willing to destroy the world as they know it to keep the other from enjoying in their place. So like in a lot of ways, there's a lot of like almost a dialectic between the two. So like you have like a lot of apocalyptic thinkers who will simultaneously talk about how the Jews are destroying the world. But then when you listen to their speeches, they almost sound apocalyptic themselves, like almost like they want the world to be destroyed. And so they switch between being the hysteric and the obsessional at the same time. Right. And so what Lacanian psychoanalysts do is they try to understand how someone's desires become structured within the symbolic, the imaginary and the real. And what they try to do is they try to understand the subject's desires through things like a slip of the tongue. Right. So what they'll do is like they'll talk with a patient. Now, I'm speaking from a clinical perspective. I, I don't do this. Right. I'm not a psychologist. Right. But like from a, from a clinical perspective, what they typically will do is they'll talk with um, their patients. And what they're listening for is they're listening not just for a contradiction, but for a very specific type of contradiction, a slip of the tongue, a, 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 a an unexpected reveal of the symptom. Right. Because the symptom is repressed into the unconscious. And so what they do is they basically look for, they like have them talk to their problems and they listen for those contradictions. And to an extent, we all do this too, right? If we run into people that we don't particularly care for, or we run into like a conflict with someone or maybe like an abusive partner or whatever, like if you listen to like an abusive partner talk, right? A lot of abusive, like, you know, relationship partners or whatever will often contradict themselves in very particular ways that kind of reveal something more about themselves. That's what Lacanian psychoanalysts do. And what I do is that obviously I'm not, a, I'm not like a psychologist or a psychi psychiatric person or whatever. I'm a rhetorician, right? So what I do is I listen to like speeches and I listen for those same contradictions. I, I'm not interested 
and like the particular rhetorical tactics as much as I'm interested in why they do what they do, right? So I listen for like, you know, the speaker saying this one thing, but it, it seems to contradict from the rest of the speech, right? So what does this contradiction say about what they're not saying? If that makes sense. Right. It'd be like, um, like going back to your original thing of like a person going like, like Jewish people are destroying the world. And then like later in the conversation, they're like, this world is filled with degenerates and deserves to be destroyed. And it's yeah. like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. On one instance, you're claiming that this group of people is destroying the world. And on this other instance, you're saying that the world deserves to be destroyed. Wait, but I thought you didn't like the fact that the people were destroying the world. But over here, you're saying the destruction of the world is a positive. Yes. These don't work together. You can't be both against the group destroying the world and pro the world being destroyed. You have yes. to pick one. There's yeah. also there's also such a thing as just a completely immoral stance. And a lot of the what you're saying is a lot of these things just make people completely ignorant that something might be wrong. They think they're justified through what they believe. Yeah, um, it's, it's like, yeah, it, it gets into this idea of like, that, and that's why, like, and that's why, from a Lacanian perspective, ideology isn't keeping you from seeing the way the world really is. What it's doing is it's keeping you from understanding its own contradictions. So then when you see the contradictions, when you are hit with the real, it's not because these are inherent within the symbolic order. It's because the Jews are doing. So I had a fun idea um, as a way to end this, and then we could continue into the bonus episode um we're it, it we're a good transition we got about 40 minutes left anthony oh 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 i thought the bonus episode was after this okay got it no um, we're so we're we we don't we don't um start that till a little bit before 9 30 so okay then we can just have this whole conversation then okay so we've been we've been pretty down on conspiracy theories this whole time very negative very much yeah, like yeah. They're bad, but there are obviously positive examples of conspiracy theories. In fact, we know for a fact that some conspiracy theories do exist, and the fact that we caught them was a positive thing. So yeah. what are the more positive examples of conspiracy theories? I mean, the most in, in an American sense, the most obvious one would be Watergate, right? So we have Watergate. Um and, and I, I guess I could use this as like a good like um uh, that's a off. conspiracy theory that led to the discovery of a true conspiracy. Yeah. And yeah. so and so remember, so remember when I said earlier that the definition of a conspiracy is simply not conspiracy, not conspiracy theory, conspiracy, that the definition of a conspiracy is simply a group of people agreeing to work in secret to achieve some type of goal. Right now. And when I said, like, there has to be a secrecy condition. Now, notice when I said I, I said there was an emphasis on the word attempt. The reason why I say I emphasize the word attempt is because it has to attempt now, whether or not the conspiracy theory people like or whatever you want to call them conspirators um whether or not they succeed in maintaining secrecy doesn't matter that does not matter right it's the fact that they agreed to try and work in secret because the moment all of a sudden if the moment we start dismissing the, the validity of certain the existence of certain conspiracies based on whether or not there was pure secrecy then like that that's a no true scotsman that becomes circular reasoning well okay what about conspiracies that ended up being like revealed right because like and a lot of people um, will have this idea of not treating um, they, they, they they'll get uncomfortable calling Watergate a conspiracy and they'll instead call it just a historical event because it was proven right. So even when the conspiracy theorists end up being right, they're still like considered wacky. So um, so that's why um, Watergate's a really good example. Just because um, a conspiracy gets revealed doesn't necessarily mean 
that um um it's no, no longer conspiracy. It's still a conspiracy. It just got revealed. Yeah, and so, and I think it's because of the association with conspiracy theory with crazy people, and also it's a great way to cover up the idea that it actually happened and it was a conspiracy. It wasn't just a thing that happened. Yeah, it was fact, planned in secret. Yeah, there. In fact, oh, oh, exactly. Okay. Well, I mean, I I like the um um how you brought up that a conspiracy a conspiracy is anything that's planned in secret with a group of people because. You know, if you, if you, the, the problem is, is conspiracy, the word has gotten a negative connotation. You can say that us as a podcast is involved in conspiracies all the time because we do a lot of planning that's not revealed. We do yeah. plan goals and projects in secret where more it's just nobody really cares. <laughs> yeah, and, and part of the reason why conspiracy theorists or conspiracy theories has such a negative connotation was because of a, of an article and there's a book version of it now by the famous american historian richard hofstadter so we often call um conspiracy theory theorists paranoid right and that's because of richard hofstadter's article called the paranoid style in american politics and he basically had like a, it was like a 40 page article um, in um harper's magazine and I, I have the book version um and so basically he he outlined the rhetorical tactics using his understanding of history because right, he was a historian. Um, and he, in fact, he actually admits, like within the first two paragraphs, that he actually borrows the word paranoid from clinical psychology. So he is borrowing from psychoanalysis, right? He he explicitly admits to that. However, he also clarifies that he's not trying to diagnose people with paranoid like schizophrenia or anything like that. He is just using paranoia in, in um, psychoanalytic theory as an analogy, not as um, um, not as like a literal like diagnosis. And he says like if paranoid conspiracy theorizing was limited to just the truly insane, then this would not be that salient of a political force. And and a lot of um, so this is where we get into like generalism versus particularism, right? So generalism. And these are more like thesis rather than like actual philosophical doctrines. So like generalism is the thesis that conspiracy theories are prima facie irrational, that they are irrational because they are conspiracy theory. But then you have particularism, which is like, wait, hold on, chill. Let's not just assume all conspiracy theories are inherently irrational. Instead, what particularism argues is that conspiracy theories are not prima facie irrational that we ought to investigate each individual conspiracy theory on their own merits and judge them based on their evidence, their arguments, and their logic. Sometimes they're batshit crazy, and if they are, they're just batshit crazy because they're batshit crazy. It's not because they're conspiracy theorists, um, whereas, um, and whereas some are a lot more logical than others. And one of the things that really annoys me from a lot of generalist literature is that they often um, look at, they often rely on Richard Hofstadter's writings on the paranoid style, and they take him a little too much at his word, and I think they misread him a lot of ways. In fact, I'll, let me read like very briefly from the, from the book. So this is, this is directly from Richard Hofstadter, I'm quoting him directly. Let us now if abstract the basic elements of the, in the paranoid style. The central image is that of a vast and sinister conspiracy, a gigantic and yet subtle machinery of influence set in motion to undermine and destroy a way of life. One may object that there are conspiratorial acts in history, and there is nothing paranoid about them. This is true. 
So even Richard Hofstadter himself openly admitted that some conspiracy theories are 100% valid and they're not necessarily paranoid. So, um, so a lot of people, I think, misread Hofstadter and use it as a way to further discredit the existence of conspiracies. Um, so Anthony is away. I was okay. going to throw I'm a back. question. Oh, you're back. Okay. Anthony, I want to ask you a question. Let's get into the fun part of this topic. Uh, not that what you were saying wasn't fun. I didn't mean it that way. No, I you're good. No, yeah, yeah. Go away from academia. Um, Anthony, um, mm -hmm. what are some of your favorite, like, kooky fun conspiracies and we can go around and share the things we you know like that 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 are kind of fascinating to us or ones that you might be actually interested in like they're they're kind of compelling even though if you know they're not real or or maybe if you believe them uh kooky fun one um i have always found the lizard people conspiracy theory to be just yeah. very <laughs> interesting David, and I very and very fun uh this idea that like we're that the that uh human society has been infiltrated by reptilian overlords space aliens who are trying to control us all uh, it's very interesting very fun to me is it uh, a really old one it was it was pushed by david ike back in i think the 80s okay because they had there was this big series called v that was about reptiles taking over and they were in disguise and the aliens take over the government and it there's this there was this whole thing and i want i always wondered which came first and if you go even further back with the uh, uh the invasion of the body snatchers yeah so i i think like the the lizard people conspiracy theory technically isn't original but i think the one that david ike pushed back in the 80s i think um it might have been the 80s. I have to double check. But uh, um, but um, the one I think the, the the his version of the lizard people is the one that people are most familiar with. Okay, so so um, let's have fun with this one. Let's play a little game with it. Um, we'll start with Anthony. Um, which celebrity is most likely a lizard person? Oh, that's why. Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise. Without a doubt. Oh, I I think I'm gonna win this. Um, uh, Logan, what about you? Oh, Elon Musk. Elon Musk? Elon Musk, 100 Ooh, that's a great one. That's a great one. Um, I'm going to say, um, oh, my brain's not working. Why can't I think of his name? He's going to say Britney Spears. Watch. No, no. That it's, would be hilarious. This that is, would be very funny, actually, yeah. That would be absolutely hilarious. No, this is the, the person who it who actually is a lizard person, and it's not a theory, is Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> no, no, he's not a lizard. He's a he's a robot. Get your, get, he's a he's a robot that has programming every day. <laughs> he appears pretty cold blooded. Um, I don't know people that are lizard like. Um, uh, like if if, if you like really think about it, um, Sylvester Stallone. Okay, you yeah, know, well because his um the 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 um. The genetic injections he has to take to maintain his disguise are malfunctioning. They're malfunctioning. They're falling, <laughs> apart. They're falling apart around him. Yeah, the the same thing about uh, Mickey Rourke. You know, they weren't boxing ah. injuries. It's just the the disguise is coming off. The disguise it's it's where it's wearing off. The adrenochrome's falling apart. Oh, that's another fun one. Yes, it is a fun one. Okay, uh, the, so Logan, what was your 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 favorite fun wackadoo conspiracy theory? 
wackadoo conspiracy theory. Yeah, yeah. What do what do you what do you what what's your guilty pleasure like? What do you what do you like? What do you make fun of? You know, not necessarily in an academic. Just like which one do you find just amusing and interesting and. Honest to God, QAnon is the funniest shit I've ever heard. Yeah, it's QAnon's crazy. QAnon's the funniest shit I've ever heard in my life. Like, honest to God, I think some of the shit that they talk about is so funny. I talk about it with my parents all the time. Like, I'll just use their language, like, all the time um, in, in just average conversation. I'll just talk about adrenochrome, because, like, why not? It's fucking hilarious. I don't know anything about that. So, okay. So, technically, adrenochrome conspiracy theories have been around in niche cultures for centuries, but um, it got popularized in QAnon. So, basically, um, so, like, we, we all know, like, the QAnon conspiracy thesis that the world is secretly ran by satanic pedophiles. Um, but the thing that QAnon people will argue is that the satanic pedophilia is where they'll ritualistically sexually abuse children and it, in satanic worship by draining the children's adrenochrome, which, if I remember correctly, is the chemical-induced, like, basically where your adrenaline comes from, if I remember correctly. Um, and they drink the adrenochrome because there was once a wackadoo scientific experiment back in, like, the 1920s that theorized that, a, that drinking adrenochrome can make you live forever. Um, and so it's the theory that they're drinking adrenochrome to maintain eternal youth, and Hillary Clinton's actually like 2,000 years old because she's been drinking children's adrenochrome for that long. And now, keep oh my in mind, God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now keep in mind, um, uh, uh, the funny thing is, is that remember the, how JFK Jr., the whole, that whole thing was discre was dis not discredited, well, I guess was that dis like distanced from Q himself. Well, Q has never actually mentioned adrenochrome in an official Q drop. But most QAnon followers believe in the uh, dream. They, they, they kind of made that up on the spot and it just kind of caught on. Okay. Throughout this in this podcast, I've been maintaining my host kind. I need to just kind of cut loose real quick. So, excuse me. Holy shit, that is the craziest mother... Oh, my fuck! Ah! It's hilarious. Holy crap. <laughs> How do people believe that? That... Oh... Oh my god! Oh, it's, god. it's great. Oh, oh. And, and, and the funny thing, because like, because again, like the whole conspiracy theory being that like the world is ran by satanic pedophiles, right? But the funny thing is that the conspiracy theory got popularized on 8chan, a website known for sharing child porn. Oh my yeah. Well, I've and that was that. another thing I was going to add about the QAnon thing. So like, where that term comes from, QAnon, is the idea of like there's this guy, this secret guy in like um in the military in the government who has quote unquote Q clearance, sharing all these government secrets with them. But they like got all these secrets on 8chan, like you're saying. And that's where the anon part comes from. It's th this person is anonymous. Yeah. Um, but here's what makes that so funny and interesting and makes me go like, wait a minute, th there's a lot of positive conspiracy theory because since they got a, a lot a lot of the people who started this got their info from 8chan and everyone's anonymous, that's so like it, it it's rife for trolling. Like it's it's a yeah. it's a conspiracy theory that's rife for any random thirteen year old idiot to be like, <laughs> look what I'm making these guys believe now. Yeah, and, and like and so and this is where it kind of like and this is where the particularism comes in, right? Because again, like obviously, like because I'm of the belief that there are some conspiracy theories that are more valid than others, right? Um, and that's not, and again, there are conspiracy theories that are absolutely batshit bonkers, like QAnon, right? 
But if you read, so like going back to Richard Huff's daughter, right? He one of the aspects that he that he um kind of ties to the paranoid style is this: this enemy, the imagined enemy in the conspiracy, this enemy seems to be on many counts a projection of the self. Both the ideal and the unacceptable aspects of the self are attributed to him. A fundamental paradox of the paranoid style is the imitation of the enemy. The enemy, for example, may be a cosmopolitan intellectual, but the paranoid will outdo him in the apparatus of scholarship, even pedantry, right? And so I think what's funny is that a lot of the more paranoid conspiracy theories become ways of projecting the conspiracy that they're working on against others, right? So like, here's a really good example. One of the earliest philosophers who theorized about like conspiracy theories was uh, Karl Popper. Karl Popper was the one who came up with the phrase conspiracy theory of society. And and I, I'm, I'm making I'm I'm pretty sure I'm getting the timeline right of when he wrote these two articles. But he has, he wrote oh, I say articles they're cha- they're chapters in his book. Um, but he initially wrote about how conspiracy theories of society are inherently irrational, primarily because um, they um, what was it? That oh that like it rely it it undermines um, liberal democracy because basically what he was arguing is that in liberal democracy we live in an open society where information is more available now than ever before and this is even before the internet right that information is more available now the institutions in democratic systems have to be public and transparent um, and so in order for a conspiracy theory to like you know you know work they have to somehow manage to work around that transparency which is not possible. And then he wrote another, I think it was, I think I'm pretty confident he wrote this later, where he then wrote an art, uh, uh, either an article or another book with this chapter in it, um, explain, basically arguing that um, uh, the Holocaust wasn't a conspiracy because the Nazis didn't manage to kill literally every single Jew in Europe. So it's not a conspiracy because it didn't achieve the 100% the goal that it was working toward. And I think the reason why he argued that is because I think he realized that his initial argument against conspiracy theories was inherently flawed. Because in order for him to, because remember, he was writing this back in the 50s, so World War II had just ended. So in order for his theory to work, in order for his philosophical assertion about conspiracy theories of society to work, that liberal democracy prevents conspiracies from being successful, um, he'd have to overlook the Holocaust, right? The Holocaust was literally a conspiracy against Jewish people in Germany and the rest of Europe, where the Nazis, were high, powerful official Nazi officials, were colluding together to decide what to do with the Jews, how to um, legally and physically suppress them, and how to literally kill them, right? And, and, and they came out of a liberal society. And it came out of a liberal society. They literally used liberal democratic order and institutions to hide, and they even tried to hide the existence of the, of the Holocaust. If you look at Nazi, um, the language of um, Nazi law, they sound a lot more, they're, they're, euph- they're, but they're euphemized, right? I, I'm trying to like the the Nur- look at the Nuremberg laws, right? You have things like um, uh, oh god, the the protection of German blood or something like that, right? Like they use a lot of euphemistic language, so they used like liberal institutions to hide the conspiracy. And I think Karl Popper realized that the contradiction in his argument that in order for his argument to work, he'd have to overlook the Holocaust. And then he wrote later on 
about how well the Holocaust isn't a real conspiracy because not every single Jew was killed in Europe. So clearly it's not a it's not a conspiracy. I think he was just coping, basically. I think he was coping. I would like to share my favorite conspiracy kooky out there conspiracy. Hit us up. Um the Roswell Aliens Area fifty one. Oh yeah, that's a classic. Uh, yeah. Oh, it's great. Classic. I went to Roswell. I went to Roswell and went to some of the stores. I literally, I, I had a lot of fun. I went with my mom, oh, nice. and this wasn't when I was a kid. This was just a few years ago. Nice. Uh, and we went to the grocery store and bought some tinfoil, and we walked around Roswell wearing tinfoil hats. That's awesome. It was a lot of fun. We, I, I have pictures of me in front of a spaceship with a tinfoil hat on. It was really fun. That's so fun. Uh, that's, that's actually a conspiracy theory. I'm not saying I believe in it, but if it turned out to be true, I would not be surprised. You know what I mean? So I'm not like actively like, I totally believe this, but it's more of like a thing in the back of my head of like, if aliens did crash land here, I, I do believe our government would hide that. Well, the gov- didn't, the, didn't the government just like recently admit that there were like 800 or something official sighting yeah that just happened this year that was a big deal they just admitted to they just released all the reported like confirmed sightings and stuff and it's basically yeah there probably are aliens (laughs) because here's well because here's the thing though is like okay if there is an alien species out there in the universe that is like intelligent enough to be able to like like do light speed travel to another to another planet allowing that information to leak would be very anxiety inducing in the in a populace that'd be very horrifying to think about so it'd be one of those things of like we need to keep this quiet to make sure people don't lose their fucking shit yeah but at this point now like it's it's kind of wild to me because like i i like yes like the 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 government admitting that ufos might be a thing um, like that's obviously huge news and it has been huge news, but like the world that we live in today has gotten so wacky and so crazy that like, I didn't even hear about it until like yesterday morning when I was walking with my mom, <laughs> but like, I didn't even, like my mom heard about it before I did. And so there's I had, a popular thing on social media just right, about now. It right now. There's a popular thing on social media right now that basically people are like, holy crap. They said there were aliens. There's aliens. This is so exciting. And then other people are like, who cares? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I, that's I, the I, meme right now is like <laughs> the world's already interesting enough. Why do we give a shit if there's aliens too? Right, right. Yeah, it's like it's, it's like it's, there's a fascist takeover in America, the world is burning up. Like, yeah, like we got we got bigger problems actually. Or yeah. or I mean what was it? So it was like looking at the other way, it's like, oh, aliens are real. Oh well, I'm gonna go see Doctor Strange now. Yeah. We have these crazy, great, amazing movies and cinematic universes. I don't care. Yeah, it, it's like um, it, it it kind of like gets into this like uh, definitely like this like post postmodern type of vibe where like there are so many fragmented narratives that are going on in the world that are like completely in conflict with each other or just causing so much tension in the world that like and I almost wonder if that's the reason why the government has been um uh, a lot more um open about the aliens because I think they kind of realize that people aren't like. It's not that people aren't interested in aliens. I'm sure they are, but like the almost fetishistic like obsession of aliens back in like the 80s and 90s, I don't think is there anymore. I think people they know that people are going to be like, eh, who cares? That I think I don't think it's going to cause that much chaos. I honestly wouldn't be surprised if like if a UFO like came down and the aliens actually like tried to like get in contact with people. I don't think most people would freak out as much as they would before like 20 years ago. 
Oh, no. I, I mean, especially after the pandemic. I, there was a lot of talk after the pandemic that people like, I don't remember exactly which comedian was. I think it was multiple comedians that were like, the pandemic has completely just made us all as a culture go, well, this might as well happen to anything yeah. else that happens. Right. So, <laughs> yes. So, um, you know, all of a sudden, all chimpanzees could start speaking English and yeah. everyone would be like, all <laughs> right, cool. That's a new thing. That's a new thing. Cool. Wait, just, did just COVID do that? That one off. Yeah. It's just like it's like a it's like a whole like fucking like list of like all, so many different like uh, uh, check marks and like just like one crazy thing after another. You know, so what, we're gonna you know wrap what COVID up. made me realize. Oh, there sorry. Go was, ahead, Anthony. If there ever was a zombie apocalypse, half of the American population would go. Would yeah. just run straight into the zombies. <laughs> just That's run true. right into it. True. Um, you were you were rich. I I, I think I'm gonna save this to the bonus episode. I, uh, so I'm gonna wrap up right now. Um, um, Logan, do you have anything you want to promote or let people know where to find you or anything? Um, I it's kind of hard like for where because I I don't have a Twitter because oh my god why do, no never have a Twitter if you it's a hell if, site like like if you if my life advice don't go on Twitter. Well, if you are interested in Logan for academic reasons, or um, you, you reach out to us, and we'll reach out to him. That'll be the best way. To yeah. Do it. So yeah. Um. And I guess the only thing I would promote is that if you are interested in studying um conspiracy theories, uh, I oh I, I do it somewhere, but I have, I have to leave for to grab it. So uh, uh so a good friend of mine and philosopher M Dentith. Um, they go by they them, and they uh, and if you talk to them in person, they just go by M. But M, M Dentith. Yeah, M Dentist, so you know, like you know who to look for, and they have a couple of books. The one that's um that's the most that they're a very readable philosopher. They have a, a book literally called The Philosophy of Conspiracy Theories. Um, really, 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 really good book. Um, that, that actually was the book that basically changed my perspective on conspiracy theories and what made me a particularist today, um, rather than a generalist like I was before. So look at them, and if you want to understand, um. QAnon. Um, I think two really good books is um, uh, what was it? Uh, there, HBO Max actually has um, a documentary. So if you have a doc, if you have HBO Max, um, QAnon, there's a QAnon documentary series there, and it's really good. Um, and where was the other book, Mike? Uh, Mike Roth. Oh, the uh, oh. There, there it is. Um, and Mike Rothschild's book, The Storm is Upon Us, How QAnon Became a Movement, Cult, and Conspiracy Theory of Everything. Highly recommend that book. Very good. Oh, great. Thank you for the recommendation. Um, so we have, um, actually, we're, we're about out of time. So um, we talked about the, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to say it this way. Logan talked about a lot of very interesting um analysis about conspiracy theories and we talked a little bit about specific conspiracy theories i do want to say logan i'm gonna to have to listen to this episode a few times because <laughs> it was a cheeseburger with jelly beans in it <laughs> it you know you if you eat it fast you don't notice the jelly beans so <laughs> um but I, I, it, it was very, it was very nice to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, we're going for coming to, on, Logan. That was a lot of fun. We're yeah. going to do a bonus episode where we talk a little bit more with Logan. You can find that at Patreon.com/slash/NerdPodcastRadio. Uh, I have been Super Vegan Brian. I've joined by Hindu Anthony. Bye, everybody. 
And um, thank you so much, Logan, for being here. It was great yeah, having you. Um, this has been Nerd Podcast Radio. Stay nerdy, stay informed, and stay awesome. Awesome.